Welcome. You're listening to a podcast by the International Bolshevik Tendency, a Marxist organization fighting for international working class revolution to overthrow global capitalism. We can be found online at Bolshevik.org, on Facebook at Bolsheviks, on Twitter and YouTube at IBT1917, and Instagram at Bolsheviks1917. This talk is entitled Pandemic, Presidents, and Profit. It was originally delivered at an IBT online public meeting on 17 October 2020. In a little over two weeks, Americans will head to the polls to vote in the presidential and congressional elections. Or rather, a slight majority of voters will turn out to cast a ballot. Almost 100 million citizens, disproportionately working class and people of color, don't bother, largely because they've figured out that it doesn't matter anyway. Vying for the top office are, of course, Joe Biden for the Democrats and Donald Trump for the Republicans. Liberals and even many self-styled socialists are advocating a Biden vote to oust the vile Trump administration, a government justly hated for its unwavering support for corporations, for its disastrous handling of the COVID-19 crisis, and for its xenophobia, racism, misogyny, and authoritarian tendencies. Yet it requires a high dose of cynicism or political amnesia and selective vision to present the Democrats, and Joe Biden in particular, as bulwarks against Wall Street institutional racism and police brutality and imperialist war. According to the polls, it looks like Biden will beat Trump in November, though the polls have been wrong before. Trump was elected president in 2016 on the back of popular revulsion at Democratic and Republican establishments tarred by corruption and warmongering. Vulgar, bombastic, and racist, Trump took aim not only at Muslims and Mexicans, but also at the denizens of the Washington swamp he eviscerated. The spectacle won over sectors of the white working class who enjoyed watching the smug democratic elite squirm at the prospect of uh, this man running the country. The only response the Democrats, as well as elements of the Republican establishment, could think of was to ally with deep state authoritarians to paint the dim-witted former reality TV star as a puppet of Vladimir Putin. The pathological Russiagate gambit inevitably and spectacularly blew up in their faces allowing Trump to portray his opponents as unhinged conspiracy theorists spent on undermining the people's champion. When it seemed that Bernie Sanders might win the Democratic nomination for president, Barack Obama put pressure on the remaining centrist or so-called centrist candidates to coalesce around his former vice president, Joe Biden, an increasingly incoherent compulsive liar, a career politician steeped in corruption, not only through his son, but Uh, more broadly, a leading proponent of the racist 1994 crime bill and a vocal advocate of the Iraq war that killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. Biden then picked former rival Kamala Harris, known for her zealous support of the drug war and law and order callousness as California's attorney general, as his running mate. There is, in fact, a fundamental continuity between the Obama, Biden, and Trump-Pence administrations, not only in a general sense of governing for the ruling class, but in a specific sense of pursuing a, a core agenda aimed at salvaging a capitalist system in a pronounced state of decline. 
the differences between Trump and his brand of Republicanism on the one hand and the Democrats and their supporters in the military industrial intelligence complex and the corporate media on the other boil down to differences over the orientation of U.S. imperialism abroad and the type of governing coalition at home. This is a matter of contention within bourgeois circles, but it should be a matter of indifference for working people. The experience of those exploited and oppressed by American capitalism, the multi-ethnic and multi-racial working class in the U.S. and the people of neo-colonies targeted by Washington and living under the domination of U.S. corporate power, their experience has certainly been shaped by the particular policies of different administrations, but it is the essential brutality of capitalism and its increasingly irrational and erratic character in its phase of decline that have set the context for what those administrations do. In his book, Invisible Leviathan, which includes a detailed empirical study of the U.S. economy, Marxist economist Murray Smith calculates an overall after-tax uh, rate of profit since World War II, the rate of profit being the central regulator of the capitalist economy. The trend from the 1950s to the 1980s shows a long-term decline from around 14% in 1950 to a low of around 5% in 1986. The decline in the rate of profit, which was expressed throughout the 1970s in an acute crisis of profitability, correlates closely to a rise in the organic composition of capital or the ratio of capital investments in technology and other dead factors to surplus value and the variable capital of productive workers' wages. Beginning with Carter, ramping up under Reagan and continuing through Bush Sr., Clinton, and George W. Bush, administrations, uh, successive administrations adopted so-called neoliberal policies designed to facilitate capital's attempt to restore profits, which did begin to rise in the second half of the 1980s though the longer-term picture is one of decline. Now, the story of neoliberalism in the U.S. and elsewhere in the advanced capitalist world is well known. Attacks on the working class uh, in the form of real wages, um, real wage stagnation and decline, that is, deregulation of business, deindustrialization and the growth of finance, in particular fictitious capital, globalization, union-busting, rising inequality, and so on. The neoliberal period witnessed a rise in the rate of profit from 5% in 1986 to 16.5% in 2006, the highest of the entire post-war period. Between 2001 and 2007, the nominal profit rate skyrocketed, but the puncturing of the housing bubble in the U.S. and the ensuing financial crisis of 2007-2008 revealed the extent to which fictitious profits had been central to the so-called prosperity of the preceding period. From 2009, the Obama administration pursuing corporate uh, bailouts begun in the last days of the Bush presidency continued to use the state to prop up financial capital. The profit rate, including in the non-financial sector, did rise from its calamitous 3% low in 2009 to over 5% in 2013. Achieving this rate of return, which in the post-war heyday would have been considered ruinous, was only possible with a massive increase in public debt. Trump criticized Obama for racking up the national debt, but he's followed uh, essentially the same policy. 
general government debt as a percentage of GDP has almost doubled over the past 20 years, from 72% in 2000 to 135% in 2019. The absolute size of the U.S. public debt is now closing in on $27 trillion. The American economy, as well as uh, other advanced capitalist economies, is essentially in a period of low growth, which itself is only made possible by massive infusions of money from the government, skyrocketing private and public debt, depressed working class living standards, and the export of internal problems to the external field in the form of outsourcing and neocolonial pillage. The COVID-19 crisis has merely accelerated and sharpened what was already looming an economic downturn of momentous proportions. This is a downturn following more than a decade of global economic slump, what Marxist economist Michael Roberts calls the long depression. Back in June, the Federal Reserve projected that the US economy will shrink by 6.5% in 2020. Although the central bank predicts a return to growth next year, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has warned of the possibility of a prolonged recession and weak recovery marked by, quote, an extended period of low productivity growth and stagnant incomes, unquote. Millions of workers have lost their jobs in a wave of mass layoffs not seen since the Great Depression of the 1930s. According to the Food Bank Organization Feeding America, about one in six U.S. residents could go hungry in 2020. That's 54 million people disproportionately living in the South. Workers face mass evictions. A large percentage of people cannot pay their rent or mortgage as the paltry relief checks and unemployment insurance run out. What was the response of the Democrats and Republicans in Congress and in the White House as the country plunged into depression? They quickly came together to pass the CARES Act, which funneled trillions of dollars via tax breaks, slush funds, and loans to the corporations. In late March, the Fed announced that it would inject up to $4.5 trillion into the economy to prop up the largest corporations, digitally printing money to keep the system afloat. Congress and the President have, however, struggled to come to an agreement over how little to offer working people in the form of assistance. Neither party has suggested anything close to real relief. This pathological servicing of the oligarchy as the working class falls into greater misery is not only a product of the needs of a capitalist system in decline, it has been made possible by the lack of adequate response by the working class and inability to fight back that has been conditioned by the political subservience of the trade union bureaucracy to one of the two wings of the Wall Street Party. The story of the American working class over the last half century is a story of being beaten down and sucked dry of blood by corporate vampires. In 1965, CEOs were paid 24 times the wage of the average production worker. This figure exploded to over 250 times by the late 1990s and early 2000s. The U.S. is today the most unequal advanced capitalist country in the world. According to the OECD, the top 1% of the United States holds 42.5% of national wealth, a far greater share than in other OECD countries. In no other industrial nation does the richest 1% own more than 28% of their country's wealth. The household wealth gap between the richest and poorest families more than doubled between 1989 and 2018. 
Many of the manufacturing jobs that disappeared over the past half century of industrial decline enjoyed union protection and comparatively good wages, gains won through hard class struggle beginning in the 1930s. Where the black working class has been able to offset its economic segregation at the bottom of society, it has largely been through fighting in unions. The trajectory of union density that is the over the last half century shows a similar pattern to the disappearance of manufacturing jobs. Between 1968 and 2018, the percentage of American workers belonging to a union fell from 28% to 10%. Over the last half century, strike activity by American workers has also fallen tremendously. The decimation of organized labor has contributed to the failure of workers to make any real gains for almost two generations. After rising steadily until the early 1970s, real wages have since been more or less stagnant. Stagnant wages in the context of increasing labor productivity contributed to a rise in profits beginning in the 1980s. The recovery of the real economy was squeezed out of the working class, which did not share in the new wealth their labor created. The attacks on the working class over the past 50 years have been bipartisan, that is, carried out in equal measure by Republicans and Democrats, despite the rhetorical support for the union sometimes coming out of the mouths of Democrats. And the reason is that both parties are big business parties. They make no secret of that. Anti-black racism and the segregation of black people at the bottom of society has always been a feature of American capitalism, though the forms in which they occur have evolved over time with the changing needs of capitalism and the social struggles that impact them. The historical origins of anti-black racism are, of course, rooted in slavery, but the persistence of racism is due to its use by the capitalists as a ready-made weapon to divide the working class and maintain a segment of the proletariat as an oppressed race color caste. Whether on the plantation, in the factory, or in their neighborhoods, American blacks have always been especially subject to brutal repression by the ruling class and its hired thugs. Projecting onto the black population the savagery and violence that they themselves commit against it, the mostly white bourgeoisie, cops, and jailers live in fear of blacks. While blacks are arrested and convicted disproportionately for violent crimes, such as murder, rape, and so on, the higher incidence essentially comes down to widely understood economic factors, as well as greater policing of black neighborhoods. To be black in America is for the vast majority of African Americans to be working class, and for many to be poor. More than a fifth of black households are so-called food insecure. That's almost twice the national average. The same numbers hold for those below the official poverty line, which is set absurdly low at $25,700 a year for a family of four. Blacks live 3.6 years less on average than do whites. The infant mortality rate among black Americans is more than twice that of white Americans. The growing economic disparities between rich and poor have been amplified by inequalities based on race and gender. The gender wage gap has improved, 
but women's median weekly earnings for full-time workers are still less than 82% of men's. Black women earn about uh, 92% of what black men earn, but only because black men earn less, just 74% of the average of white men's earnings. Household income inequality is even greater. Pew Research reports that the median black household income was 61% of median white household income in, in 2018, up modestly from 56% in 1970, but down slightly from 63% in 2007. While income inequality is stark across racial lines, wealth inequality is simply obscene. According to the Institute for Policy Studies, the median black family with just over $3,500 owns just 2% of the wealth of the nearly $147,000 the median white family owns. Put differently, the median white family has 41 times more wealth than the median black family. Now, understandably, many black people cheered when Obama was elected president in a country whose constitution once defined black slaves as the equivalent of three-fifths of white people. Yet Obama's tenure in the White House did nothing to help black workers or the broader working class. His vague promises of hope and change were only ever designed to rehabilitate the country's political establishment following the disastrous years of the George W. Bush presidency. Obama's legacy was to continue a political shift that began in the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton in the 1990s. One of the fronts on which the Clinton administration fought to roll back gains for the working class and the poor, with particularly harsh consequences for the black population, was so-called welfare reform. A study by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities shows that the percentage of families with children in poverty again, disproportionately black, receiving welfare benefits declined from 82% in 1979 to 68% in 1996 to 22% in 2018. In a country ruled by a rapacious oligarchy, the Democratic Party, its racist Republican brother-in-law, targeted the supposed grift of imaginary black welfare queens whose children now go hungry. One of the senators voting for welfare reform was, of course, Joe Biden, who years earlier echoed the dog whistle racism of Reaganites when he wrote of, quote, welfare mothers driving luxury cars and leading lifestyles that mirror the rich and famous, unquote. Biden is infamous for his leading support of another legislative assault on black people, the 1994 crime bill. In the 1980s and 1990s, Biden routinely employed racist tropes to push for tough on crime laws to lock up poor people, again, disproportionately black, including juveniles he hoped would be tried as adults. In a 1993 speech, he anguished over, quote, a cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience, end quote. Biden warned that they would grow up to be, quote, predators who need to be kept away from my mother, your husband, our families, unquote. 
In the last quarter of the 20th century, Biden played a key part in a broader drive to criminalize African-Americans and replace the old segregationism with a new Jim Crow system of police surveillance and mass incarceration. Black Americans are much more likely to be arrested and imprisoned than white Americans. They make up about 13% of the U.S. population as a whole, but 38% of the prison population, a ratio that has not changed much in over a century. What has changed is the absolute size of the prison population, which is about six and a half times larger than it was in 1970. According to data presented by the Sentencing Project, black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men. One in three black men born in 2001 can expect to be imprisoned at some point in their life. While the confluence of race and poverty and the associated social causes of criminal activity go some way in explaining the higher rates. Much of the disparity is due to transparent racial discrimination by cops and judges. According to the NAACP, quote, African-Americans represent 12.5% of illicit drug users, but 29% of those arrested for drug offenses and 33% of those incarcerated in state facilities for drug offenses. The increasing militarization of police forces in the U.S., which is itself a byproduct of the military-industrial complex and running an empire, has been promoted by Democratic and Republican administrations alike. Trump's response to the killing of George Floyd may have contrasted rhetorically with that of the Democrats, but cop killings of unarmed black men are at roughly the same level under Trump as they were under Obama. Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, and many others whose death we associate with the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement were, let us recall, murdered while Obama was in the White House. The Democrats' bluster, feigned outrage, and cynical virtue signaling are partly designed to cover up for their own role in passing legislation that could allow Trump to claim a legal footing for his authoritarian actions. Obama signed the 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, which purports to allow the government to strip citizens deemed terrorists of their constitutional rights. In November 2019, they extended the infamous post 9-11 Patriot Act, which gives the federal government sweeping powers of surveillance and broadly defines domestic terrorism as acts that appear to be intended to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion or to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, that is conceivably any form of social protest. Days after Trump dispatched federal agents to Portland in the summer, the Democrats supported legislation granting $50 billion in funding to the DHS and its uh, agencies without a word about the raids. In June 2019, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats overwhelmingly voted for a record $738 billion in Pentagon military spending for the so-called fascist Trump, while more recently they rejected a congressional proposal to reduce the Pentagon budget by a mere 10%. One of the reasons liberals often cite to justify their support for the repulsive Biden ticket is the ecological crisis. Last November, the UN Environment Program published an emissions gap report, which noted that annual reductions of greenhouse gas emissions by 7.6% starting now would be required merely to keep the global temperature increase to within one and a half degrees Celsius. 
Biden has offered vague support to the Green New Deal. Both he and Harris have also indicated they understand climate change to be an existential threat. Swedish climate change activist Greta Thunberg has apparently come out in support of Biden. Yet Biden has ties to the fossil fuel industry. He's taken money from it and openly supports fracking. Now, it may be true that the Democrats have more ties to the fractions of U.S. capital seeking to get rich off alternative energy sources, while the Republicans are somewhat more aligned with the oil and natural gas companies. This difference is, however, one of degree and not principle. And the difference is, in fact, minimal. While the Democrats, whether the Democrats or the Republicans control the government, the most likely path for American capitalism is increases in so-called green energy and technology alongside the continuation and dominance of greenhouse gas emitting industries, uh, which fund both parties. Tomsky once noted, if the Nuremberg laws were applied, then every post-war American president would have been hanged. Chomsky, who was once again voting for the supposed lesser evil Democratic candidate, was right to point to the hypocrisy of American presidents, Democratic and Republican, condemning other non-American war criminals when they themselves have been responsible for countless atrocities. The current dispute between the Democrats and Republicans, dispute that has led elements of the deep state to openly undermine the sitting president, is not over war crimes or whether or not to violently project American power abroad. They all agree on that, of course, because how else could you run an empire? Now, the dispute is over how best to stop the downward slide of the U.S. on the world stage. And even then, the dispute is overlain with considerable agreement vacillation and contradiction. Initially, at least, Trump appeared to be more interested in pursuing an aggressive approach to China while seeking to neutralize Russia, which had grown anxious over increasing Western encroachment in its spheres of influence. That had, in fact, been the approach of the Obama administration, though the emphasis shifted toward an anti-Russia position. In fact, there is substantial agreement on targeting China a country that Marxists defend against imperialist aggression. In our view, it remains a deformed worker state. In early July, Washington deployed the aircraft carriers USS Nimitz and USS Ronald Reagan, along with dozens of aircraft cruisers, destroyers, and a B-52 bomber to conduct naval exercises in the South China Sea under the pretext of ensuring freedom of navigation, that is, blocking China's access to raw materials and energy sources from Africa and the Middle East. This was quickly followed by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's hypocritical insistence that Chinese activity and territorial claims, such as military installations throughout the South China Sea, were illegal under international laws to which the U.S. itself does not adhere. Trump's hardline approach with support from the Democrats is a direct continuation of the Obama, the Obama Biden administration's pivot to Asia, which involved then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton reframing previously low-level territorial disputes in the region into matters of U.S. national interest. Washington's aim then, much like today, was to exacerbate existing tensions and prevent China from seeking or from taking a leadership role in the area while supporting U.S. allies by protecting their access to resources. 
the Washington-backed democracy, quote-unquote, campaign in Hong Kong is essentially a wedge against China and a, and a justification for yet another round of U.S. sanctions. U.S. imperial planner, planners are hostile to both Russia and China, and their pursuit of American corporate interests abroad puts them on the path to neocolonial military adventures in the Middle East, Africa, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and Latin America, and thus on a collision course with both Russia and China. From the standpoint of working and oppressed people in the U.S. and around the world, the differences between Trump and Biden are essentially tactical and of no fundamental consequence. It is a measure of just how decrepit the American political system is that the two main candidates for president are Biden and Trump. Also an expression of the rot of the American empire is the fact that what passes for left-wing populist opposition in the country is openly backing Biden rather than calling for spoiled ballots and disgust. Of course, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and the rest of the squad are backing the Biden-Harris ticket, but so are others to their left. The country's leading socialist, quote-unquote, organization, the reformist Democratic Socialist of America, is reportedly split on the matter of whether or not to vote for Biden, with some favoring it in swing states, some favoring it in all states, and some opposed outright. The DSA has no principled opposition to voting for capitalist candidates. They enthusiastically backed Sanders in the primaries and promote progressive, quote-unquote, candidates in the Democratic Party and Congress now. While many well-intentioned people have undoubtedly been attracted to the DSA in recent years, its membership has ballooned to more than 65,000, the organization ultimately serves the same sheepdog function as Sanders in channeling radicalizing youth and workers into the graveyard of social movements. Any socialist who counsels voting for the Democrats or the Republicans, of course, has a basic misunderstanding of what socialism is. U.S. society is unstable. Its economic and social underpinnings have cracked. The country is currently experiencing a moment of turmoil that could lead to even greater explosions of mass discontent in the near future. The authorities are eager to quell the unrest as soon as possible, but neither the Democrats nor the Republicans will be able to fix the underlying problems, which are rooted in the structures of capitalism. Whether the ruling class temporarily opts for good cop concessions or bad cop authoritarianism, the path will lead towards confrontation and radicalization. In the absence of revolutionary leadership, however, mass radicalization will not result in victory. The state, with the assistance of fascist and far-right forces, which are already active, will eventually crush radical movements of working class and poor people that lack a perspective of taking power, or those movements will be co-opted. The political level of the protests that have recently swept the country is low relative to the objective requirements of a seizure of power. Calls to defund the police and assertions that Black Lives Matter, much like the removal of contentious statues, can be easily integrated into the system by cynical capitalist politicians. The struggle for a revolutionary party requires articulating a revolutionary program and fighting for that program in the streets, in meetings, and in the labor movement. There is no shortage of opportunities to advance a transitional program for workers' power. 
Workers across the country have staged hundreds of wildcat strikes since March, particularly following the spread of the George Floyd protests. As the economic crisis deepens, sanctioned and unsanctioned strikes are likely to spread. The state will try to repress them while the labor bureaucracy will try to limit militancy. Revolutionaries have a duty to put forward a class struggle perspective to win current battles and build for future victories. Overturning capitalism in the belly of the beast is not a specifically American task. Revolution in the United States will be an international affair, not simply because of its influence in the world, but because the working class that will lead the revolution is itself an international class with direct connections to Latin America, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Revolution may begin elsewhere and migrate to the US, though it will hardly be the work of foreign agitators. America's own development has made it ripe for revolution. A century ago, in the backward czarist empire, the working class stood up and struck down its oppressors. The October Revolution, led by the Bolshevik party of V.I. Lenin and Leon Trotsky, shook the world and ushered in an era of proletarian revolution. That wave of revolution ultimately crashed on the rocks of reaction. Today, an ocean of discontent is stirring. Tomorrow, it will rise.